night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Welcome to the program. Tonight will be a, I don't know, I guess disturbing discussion. Anytime you talk about true crime, it could get disturbing, but that's kind of the fascination we have with it. I don't know what the attraction is, but almost everybody has the interest in um, watching television shows or documentary films or things like Making a Murderer or The Staircase or even uh, true crime podcasts. They're very, very popular because people have this morbid curiosity. And in, in some cases, it's just... You know, the truth is stranger than fiction, and when you hear these stories, you just can't believe they're real, even though you know they are. So we're going to have one of those discussions tonight. Our guest, Mary Kay McBrayer, is a true crime author. She's written a book called America's First Female Serial Killer, Jane Toppin and the Making of a Monster. This is a story that I was completely unfamiliar with until I uh, stumbled across her book, And uh, it's one that you should be familiar with because it's so unbelievably horrifying what this woman did and when she did it. Uh, Mary Kay is also a host of a podcast called Everything Trying to Kill You, which is a horror comedy, uh, horror movie comedy podcast. So we'll learn a little bit more about that as well tonight during our discussion with Mary Kay. If you're joining us for the first time, please make sure you subscribe to the channel, whether you're watching us on Twitch or you're watching us on YouTube. Please subscribe and or follow. There's no fee for subscriptions on YouTube. There is a fee on on Twitch, but if you use your Amazon Prime account to subscribe on Twitch, then there is no fee. Otherwise, you can just follow on Twitch, and that way you'll be alerted to us. And if you're a first-timer, thanks for being here with us tonight. All right, let's go to break. Let's get our guest on the line. We have a lot to talk to Mary Kay McBrayer about, because not only is she a true crime author, and we're going to talk about her book, but she's also a horror film fan, which, as all of you know, I am as well. And being the uh, promoter and organizer of the Scaricon series of horror conventions, I bet you we're going to have a lot of uh, ground to cover when it comes to horror film conversation tonight. So hope you're Hope you're ready for that one as well. Uh, Again, it's break time. We'll get uh, our guests on the line, and we will be right back. It's Beyond Reality. Please support the program. Go to patreon.com slash johaw. That's J-O-H-A-W. Tonight, we're going to have uh, a multiple uh, topic discussion. We're going to start with uh, one of the things that uh, seems to be taking America by storm. I don't know if it's the world, but we're going to have the conversation about it. But true crime stories are very, very, not just interesting, but popular people want to hear about these stories now and i don't know when it started i used to and i still do actually watch a a show called forensic files and another one called cold case files and then anytime a documentary would show up about uh, a true crime case i would uh, watch that things like obviously making a murderer uh the staircase i watched one the other day what was oh the cheshire the cheshire murders or something like that uh about uh the killings in connecticut um very very fascinating stuff and it's something about this morbid curiosity that we all possess that makes these stories come alive and then we have people like our guest tonight mary Kay mcbrayer who does the research takes the time to compile it and put it into a form that we can learn from it and enjoy the story, even though it is a bit of a disturbing story. So, Mary Kay, welcome to Beyond Reality. It's a real honor to have you with us tonight. Oh, I'm honored to be here. Thank you so much for having me, Jamie. So we're going to talk about your book, uh, your interest in true crime. We're going to talk about your podcast, your interest in horror films. Um, We're going to talk about all those things. But before we do that, let's learn a little bit more about you. Tell us about yourself. Okay. Um, right now I'm holed up in my apartment in Atlanta, just like everyone in yeah, Atlanta. Yeah. Um, I, <laughs> I am a longtime reader, a longtime writer, always been fascinated with sort of macabre stuff. Like, for example, I just took a dollhouse out of my mom's attic and I'm redoing the interior from a different literary horror scene. So like the upper level is the yellow wallpaper. I'm working on the kitchen, which is going to be, uh, we have always lived in the castle. So um, wow. that's uh, kind of what has been going on with me today. <laughs> but um, at large, I, you know, I wrote the um, America's First Female Serial Killer, the story about uh, Jane Toppin. Um, and I co-host 
and co-founded a horror movie podcast that is also comedy because that's how we handle um, stuff that we can't handle. <laughs> through like making fun of it or making fun of ourselves for not being able to handle it. There's some real truth yeah, to that. Bit. There's some real truth to that. Um, in many situations, particularly in you know a scary movie type situation, laughter seems to be one of our defenses, doesn't it? I think so. I mean that that I think that's why it's parodied so much too, is because especially with like the very scary, like The Exorcist has been yeah. done to death. You know, it's like been completely satirized forever. But I think that's why is because it is so disturbing that you can't really compartmentalize it unless you have something to superimpose over that <laughs> sort of um, film trauma yeah. type of thing that happens. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you listed a, a couple of things here. You're obviously interested in cr- true crime stories, and you, you mentioned a macabre fascination. I understand that completely. You mentioned horror films. I understand that completely. Um there's a third thing here. Oh, oh, we're going to talk about this, too. I noticed on your website uh, that you've either had or have a ghost in your house or something. And uh, we're going to talk about that. So you obviously have an interest in the paranormal stuff, too. If I was the uh, a guest on a program and someone asked me to tell uh, them about myself, I would list those three things. And I'd probably add that I'm a, <laughs> I'm a very serious musician as well. So maybe with that difference, it sounds like we, we have some very similar interests. But my question to you is, why do you think some people uh, kind of develop the fascination with these darker, and I, I don't use darker in a good and evil sense, just these kind of macabre, mm-hmm. you know, interests versus people. There are people who won't go to see a scary movie. There are people that don't want to know about, you know, real horrors in the yeah. world like true crime. What makes a difference, do you think? Um, That's a great question. I think uh, for me personally, like, just hearing, like, you know, I'll tell people that I am fascinated with with scary stuff and they'll be like, Oh no, don't tell me anymore. Like, so let's talk about something like, like you said, like they just want to totally avoid it. Yeah. And I can totally respect that. And I think it really, we're, I, for me personally, and of course, you know, I'm about to make a sleeping generalization, so you can kind of take it with a grain of salt, but we're all going for peace of mind. I think ultimately. So some people have more peace of mind, just being like, it's not in my mind now. Don't put it in there. And so they want to avoid everything. And then for me, because I am an anxious person, I'm just constantly thinking about what could go wrong at any given moment. So putting it in like a controlled space like TV or even even in a book, although I will argue that books are scarier than things that are on screen yeah. for me generally because, you know, it happens in kind of the screen of your mind. So it's like I made that happen in my brain, even though you didn't really. But um, And then I think true crime is, is a, in a similar vein where it's like some people are like, yeah, you know, you know I'm as safe as I can be, and I don't want to – don't tell me anything scary that happens around me because I can't do anything about it, and it's just going to freak me out. Um, but other people, like me, I'm like, tell me all of that shit so I can avoid it. Like, <laughs> I need to know everything just so I can be ready for in case it happens. So I guess that's the – um, based on just like conversations I've had, there's like my anecdotal sorry, like, <laughs> uh, analysis, I yeah. guess, of, of why people fall like on that, on either line of that. And it definitely does seem to be somewhat polarizing because it, like, everybody has some strong feelings about it. They just aren't always the same feelings, I think. Yeah, I think that's a great observation. Um, I will say this, that even though there is kind of this polar divide between people who enjoy this type of, I'll call it entertainment, and those who don't, um, but at the same time, we look at you know the history of Netflix and and making a murderer was the you know one of the their biggest blockbusters, and then they had the staircase uh, story, mm-hmm. another true crime story, and then the Tiger King story, which was just bizarre by on its own right, but it also had criminal and crime elements in it. Um, mm-hmm. What do you think the specific fascination with true crime is? Where does that come from? Hmm. I think that, you know, anytime something is based on a true story or you see like that title card or you hear something on the news, it, it resonates more deeply with a lot of people because um, it, it's an actual person and not just 
a character. I, I mean, I don't know that I feel that way about it necessarily, but that seems to be one distinction that, that people make. I think it's just as disturbing when they're fictional because that still came from someone's mind. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> like, uh, uh, the example that comes to mind for me where, where it's kind of a gray area, right. Is, um, the, uh, I think it just turned 30 years old, Silence of the Lambs, which will never, ever age. It is just, I mean, it has aged, and there are things that we can look back at it now and, you know, say we've changed. But it's just such a, a masterpiece, and I, and I just, like, all of those characters are fictional, but they had, you know, Robert Ressler on the scene who, you know, was one, like, if y'all have seen Mindhunter, he's the one that the the elder specialist is based on. So, I mean, he was a consultant. So he was, like, saying, like, oh, no, people, you know, it's, a, it's an amalgam of actual things that people did and then fictionalized. But that's just as disturbing to me. I know that a lot of people don't uh, don't feel that way about it, but I think it's um, they might just be better at compartmentalizing <laughs> than me, <laughs> particularly, than uh, some people. But... Um, I, I do think that that's one reason why, why true crime is so fascinating is because um, we, we kind of take for granted when we hear the words true that it is factual and documented and um, and it's just kind of there's no room for error when you hear true crime. Although, you know, the more we learn about the the, the way that the human mind works. There are very few absolutes. So, um, so I guess that kind of dissolves if you think about it. Too yeah. Far yeah. Too. What, um, you know, uh, for your personal taste, are, do you find yourself more interested in, uh, historical true crimes that have been solved or things that are still outstanding? You know, there's this case, um, and darn it, I'm blanking on uh, the town, um, but with the with the two young girls that were murdered and, and one of them caught uh, an image of the murderer on a oh, social. Yeah, yeah I, it was at Snapchat or something. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they still haven't been able to solve that case. And there's a whole bunch of, you know, there's a whole community that's developed uh, to try to help solve that case online. And mm-hmm. the same thing, I just watched a documentary called... Um, well, I think it's disappearance at the Cecil Hotel or something like that. Uh, about oh, that's on my list. Okay, I haven't seen it yeah, yet. It's, but it's, I know a little bit about the Cecil. It's really <laughs> fascinating. And of course, the the real hook in that is that there's this you know two minute video of the girl who disappeared right before she disappeared, and she's acting strangely. It's an elevator surveillance camera video. But anyway, for for your personal taste, do you do you gravitate mm-hmm. more toward the historical crimes that have been resolved in one way or another? or these more contemporary crimes that are under in the process of being investigated? Oh, that's a great question. Um, so I definitely think that there's more merit in investigating the, the unsolved cases because good can come of that generally. If, like, if, you can, if you can be one of the citizen sleuths, absolutely do that because you could help. Even if you don't help solve that case, people can learn from, you know, the tactics that you've taken. It keeps it in the public eye. Like, there's all kinds of merit behind the unsolved cases. However, <laughs> me personally, um, I don't have the emotional fortitude to handle um, that that level of, like, uh, suspecting and, and paranoia. So for me, I like the historical solved crimes, um, even though, of course, with all of the technology that we have now, it will never be solved to the degree that we want it to be um, in, in, in even like the recent past, because it's just developing at such a, a, a rate. Um, but I do like the historical ones uh, for that reason, kind of like um, Jane Toppin's story happened at the, you know, in the Gilded Age at the turn of the century. And I was just Equally as fascinated with, like, the murders as the way she would have grown up. Like, um, I I remember researching, like, Victorians were nuts about their funeral rites. Like, there was a whole etiquette and just a, like, it was just like, who could mourn the best? And I was just fascinated with that. Um, so I, I like the historical ones, not only because 
um, there, there's usually some sort of peace in, like, even if they're not solved, it's like, well, it was a long, long time ago. Like, now we could probably solve it. Um, even if that's not true, it's just sort of a, a sweet little lie I tell myself to make myself feel better. Um, but I don't know that, that my personal interest is, I, I don't think it's as good as, as the altruism of someone who's, who uh, can dig into the the current open cases. Um, by the way, the case that, that I was referencing was the Delphi murders, the Delphi case. Okay. Just to, just to yeah, I couldn't think of the name either, yeah. but I have heard of that story. And I feel like that one... They're going to get that person. I, I feel good about that. Mm-hmm. That case. Yeah. Well, they've certainly got some tools to work with. So let's keep our fingers crossed that they find that culprit because that person deserves to be behind bars. Um, Absolutely. Obviously, you've written a book called "America's First Female Serial Killer: Jane Toppin and the Making of a Monster." When did this case? When did this person first uh, enter your radar? When did you learn about the case? So I actually heard her story on a podcast and uh, it was, um, you know, it was like, here's a story about this person. And as I was listening, I just was unsatisfied with the amount of information they were giving because um, it, it just, from the jump, like it just seemed like so many traumatic things were happening to her that I was like, yeah, I mean, I get it that she killed dozens of people and I understand that she is evil and a monster, but I really feel like there's more to this story. So I heard her story maybe six or seven years ago. And I, you know, as a a curious inquisitive person, I was like, I'm going to go look up more about her. So, you know, you first you hit Wikipedia, which I know we take it out with a grain of salt as well, but you know, they have sources on Wikipedia. So then you can go there and um, I ended up finding the, the another book about her by Harold Schechter, with, whom I adore. Like, if y'all are into true crime, he is the man. He's the talking head. I really can't um, cite him enough because I learned so much from his book. And even then, even with all of the you know myriad research that he had done, uh, overturning so many stones to find small facts about her, I really just feel like the, the more I learned about the facts, the less I knew her as a human. And that was interesting to me because I would have assumed that, you know, for America's first female serial killer, someone has sensationalized it. There's got to be, you know, a, a TV show about her or something. And I just, I couldn't find anything outside of, you know, kind of dead ended there. Um, and it's not to say that that book wasn't amazing. It just wasn't what I wanted from the story. So uh, I did some outside research. I found um, that court case, some court case documents, you know, it was a long time, a really long time ago. So some of them are just gone. But, um, yeah, so I heard it on the podcast and just decided that wasn't the story the way that I wanted it to be told. So then I went and told it in the way that I thought it should be told, which sounds super vain, which I have accepted and made peace with and moved on from. Well, I think, you know, I think it's important uh, that you found a story. You felt as though the the whole story wasn't being told, and, and, and it's important that we do tell the whole story. So I think I don't think that's a, a sign of vanity as much as it is a sign you. of you wanting it to be thoroughly told, and, and that's certainly admirable. Um, that's very kind of I you. Have not, I had not heard about uh, Jane uh, Toppin and her crimes, I know. Uh, which is very I know. bizarre, given, and we're going to get into some of these details, but given how extensive she uh murdered i mean uh, something like 30 she confessed to 31 uh, murders um and they mm-hmm. think there may have been more why is this one of those stories that that is kind of buried in uh, you know underneath uh, the pile of history here well that's a that's like the question that i was like this is this is egregious like why don't why are we why don't we know her like this is such a I just, to me, felt like such a textbook case of, like, early intervention could have saved so many lives. And I, uh, and so that's one of the reasons why it stood out to me is that no one had, like, where is she at? Like, we have so many things about, you know, the the big, famous, um, 
male serial killers, especially in America. Um, but like, there's not very much about her at all. I mean, we, ha- I mean, there's, you know, the, the one film or maybe two about Eileen Warnos and then, you know, men kind of have the market cornered, which, I mean, it is what it is in some, in some regard, but, um, to answer your question more directly about like why she's just kind of gotten lost in history, um, that wasn't a question I tried to answer um, as I was writing the book. And I think, honestly, a big part of it is that at the time, she was not a very visible person. Um, and when I say that, I, I mean, like, she was working class. So she was an indentured servant. She Well, she was an orphan and an indentured servant. After, she was indentured out from the orphanage. And then... Um, in her late 20s, she decided to make a career change because she was not, you know, she couldn't really provide for herself outside of that family, even though she had been emancipated. And uh, she decided to become a nurse, which, I mean, that's very hard, heroic work now. And then it was just, uh, it was a lot of custodial work and, like, medicine was not very far advanced. So it was very hard work then, too. So, and to, so one thing, you know, the working class, and then secondly is uh, it's very disturbing to think of someone whom you should trust and should be kind and should be nurturing and should save your life actually trying to kill you. And I think it's even more, I mean, for the Victorian time especially, but even now it's like, why would you go into that field if you didn't want to help people? Yeah. It just seems um, like such a, a good person thing to do. So it's upsetting, right, that you that um, that could happen. And then a third reason, I think, why she's been kind of buried is, um, well, it was kind of embarrassing for the professionals at the time. Like, this woman is, she, she killed 31 people at least in you know, just a few years. And it's like, what, what, what were y'all doing? Like, who, who are you looking at? How did, yeah. like, she has a trail of bodies in her wake. What, uh, what's going on? Um, so I think that those are the three biggest reasons. And, and I will say this too, I forgot about this. Um, historically, she was eclipsed by, um, or her story, not, not her, but the, her actual headlines, right? Like in the paper, she would have been in the headlines, except for that, um, President McKinley was um, assassinated, or he was—he was attempted. Um, assassination was attempted, and then um, they were just kind of keeping up with that because. Um, and I had forgotten about this because it, you know, like you said, you know, there's so much history it gets buried. But when I was researching it, I had forgotten that he got shot and the bullet stayed in him, and they didn't have a doctor. So a veterinarian came to look, and he was like, oh, yeah, he's fine. It missed everything. Um, just leave that bullet in there. And then he, you know, got lead poisoning in his blood and, and ended up dying. But it took a long time. So that was, like, all of the headlines. And then they had to go find Theodore Roosevelt. So it was, like, a lot of <laughs> big story stuff um, buried, buried that sensation just timing-wise. Uh, like Lizzie Borden happened shortly, or I, I think a little bit, a couple of years after that. My mind is not super sharp on that point, but um, we all know who she is. Um, so I, I think it; those four reasons, I think, are the big four. Yeah, I have a note in my in my list of questions and notes here that uh, she was a contemporary of Lizzie Borden's. Lizzie Borden's crimes were in eighteen ninety two. Um, okay, so and, before, okay. and and I really should know this too, but Jack the Ripper's crimes were somewhere in that scope of dates as well. Um, so there's a lot of weirdness happening. But you make a really, mm-hmm. really good point because we often forget. We're so used to being able to go to uh, the television and turn on one of you know twenty different channels that are that are you know twenty four hour either news or specifically talking about things like uh, you know the, these crime uh, stories, whether it's you know current, contemporary, or past stories, and being able to you know see the coverage of these things in real time, many cases, but but constantly. 
That's not the way it was. You had one or two newspapers in a community, and you had to rely on what they were telling you because you didn't have any other options. There was no broadcast media in the late uh, 19th century. So, um, you know, sometimes these things just got forgotten um, because, as you said, there were bigger headlines of the day, and they they took uh, most of the attention away from people. Yep, exactly. And I think that there's something to be said, too, about having few news sources because um, I was able to find a lot of those, which was a damn delight, just being in the basement of a private university library. They just let you in. Like, any library will be like, oh, just, you know, sign your name. Okay, what do you want to look at? It's amazing. Libraries are amazing. Uh, Anyway, kind of got sidetracked, but just, like, scrolling through uh, the the records of those newspapers and, and reading it and just being like, okay, I know that she didn't say that. I didn't even know her. And I just know that they, that sentence put together that way does not make sense for this woman to have said. Like, I know that y'all have changed some stuff. So there's that, too, to consider. Of um, they, they were trying to sell papers. I mean, we see that now as well. Like we're more sensational, the news story that the more likely people are to uh, consume it. But but then it was just like there was not even anyone to really check that. You know, like there was just the, there were just a few news sources and you trusted them. All right, so let's talk about, um, and you've touched on some of this already, but let's talk about Jane Toppin because, um, okay. you know, let's talk, I mean, as we get to know this woman, you know, we certainly aren't going to be able to excuse her crimes. But as you said, it's Definitely. it's what made her what she was that's a really big part of this story. And um, it, once you understand that, it starts to uh, paint a picture that you can see there was there was you know trouble in this uh, in this pot that was about to boil over. Mm-hmm. So tell us about um, her, you know her her childhood, who she was, uh, you know, from her roots. Okay. So, uh, to your point, I wanted to talk more about how she became a monster Mm -hmm. than what she did that was horrible, because, I don't know, I just felt like that was more respectful of the victims, and and the other parts had already been done. So, like, why redo that if you want to know more about, you know, the the individual crimes in in the court case? Someone else has done that. Definitely recommend those books. Um, but for me, yes, I wanted to talk about the series of cascading failures that the society that she lived in yeah. sort of inflicted upon her. Like it, and so I'm not really in, in either camp as far as nature or nurture goes. Right? Like we know that hurt people hurt people, but we also know that not all hurt people hurt people. And we, and we know that like not every, like it just, it's a squares and rectangle situation, right? Like they don't, it doesn't work. It's not very linear. So what I, so what I wanted to explore in the book is, um, was it, uh, was there like a specific moment when she went off the rails or was it more of a snowballing gradual culmination? And I think I landed on the latter because, um, this, honestly, the line that got my attention when I heard the story on the on the podcast is that um, she she and her elder sister um, were. Uh, this is not the line. This is just sort of like amping it up. So when I deliver the line, you'll be ready for it. Okay. So she and her sister um, were were the youngest in a family of either two or four. The records are different, and they were the children of Irish immigrants. Um, at the uh, in the 1860, late 60s, early 70s, I can't remember the exact date offhand, um, which was a real bad time to be an Irish immigrant in America. Um, it, it was because it was, you know, the situation in Ireland was terrible. And then there were blatantly prejudiced uh, polity, policies uh, against Irish as well. Like pe- people who were hiring would put signs in the window saying, no Irish need apply. Um, so they, you know, they immigrated with the hope of a better life and, um, were kind of still destitute. So, um, to add to that, which is just, a you know, a, this situation, um, her mother died of tuberculosis when she was an infant. Um, and then 
her father, who apparently the, the family had some history with mental illness, it wasn't very much detailed in the research. I think not only because, you know, psychological science has advanced so far since then, but also because um, those records weren't kept for someone like Peter Kelly at the time. Um, so the, the line that got my attention is when he, after he surrendered his two daughters to the Boston Female Asylum, which was the orphanage, um, he was a tailor, and he tried to sew his own eyelid shut. Oh, jeez. Yeah. So, 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 let, let, um, let's, so hold, on, hold on for a second. Let's just yeah. kind of summarize where we are here. So you've got you've got this uh, Irish immigrant family that 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 emigrate to the United States. They're in the Boston area, mm-hmm. right? That's where they they come to. Yes, and they're we, um, outside of Boston, uh, so in like the Lowell area yeah. i believe and we know um, and we know that area has a very rich uh, irish uh ancestry um you know there's there's right. a very rich irish culture there a lot of uh folks from ireland did emigrate to that area part of the united states right. um so she's there her mother dies when she's an infant she's got an older sister she has another sibling too right aren't there three of them so the records are not super clear about mm-hmm. that like sometimes there's four sometimes there are two but when there are four, two of them have the same name. Oh. So it's it's like it's kind of dicey, like somebody was in a hurry when they wrote it down type of thing. Yeah. Like a clerical error, possibly. So I'm not sure about that, but it does make sense to me that he would um, keep the, if there were four, keep the elder children because they could kind of provide for themselves. Or or, or or help take care of him. So the father exactly. um, decides that he no longer wants to have to take care of the two younger girls. One of the two younger girls, the youngest, I am assuming, is, and her name isn't Jane Toppin. It's um, what? It's Honora. Or, what's her What's her real name? So her, her given name is Honora Kelly. Honora Kelly. And she's the baby. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know that he... Um, so much as, like, couldn't be bothered to take care of them, Mm -hmm. so much as he could kind of, from what I've read, he could tell that he was not doing well and that he couldn't take care of them. Yeah, well, he ends up trying to sew his own eyelids shut. You know there's a problem there. And, in fact, I think I read somewhere that he had a nickname, uh, Kelly the Crack, for Crackpot, right? I mean, so he Mm -hmm. he was a notoriously odd fellow, from what I understand. Yeah, that's my understanding of it, too. Um, and, and I think that some like his oddness came from both mental illness and probably trying to self-medicate with alcohol. Right, right. So um, she, so at some point, the father decides uh, that he can't or doesn't want to take care of these two younger mm-hmm. girls, and he goes to the uh, the the orphanage or the girls' home, what, and drops them off, basically. Uh, basically, yes. He, he had to sign over his parental rights so that the girls could be indentured out so someone could take care of them. And they, well, they could take care of their house as well. So, and that's what ends up happening to um, to Jane. Uh, and this, this is yeah. actually, she takes this name actually at that point. But um, she gets sent to a home and becomes an indentured servant. We don't have those now, but that's basically, right. I mean, that's just one thing shy of a slave. Yes. Um, it is, it wasn't slavery, but it wasn't because it wasn't called that. Right. I think. Right. Um, so she, she was indentured out, um, earlier than was the standard. So they got like extra work out of her. Um, and then the, 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 um, contract went that when like, she would work in the house, made of all work, cleaning, cooking, pretty much, pretty much keeping the house. She is the housekeeper, a child, like eight, eight to ten. Um, and then when she turned eighteen, she would get money enough to buy a new set of clothes, and that was it. And like, and then you were done. Contract was done, and now you can do whatever you want. Um, so that didn't really set up anyone to take care of themselves. So what would often happen is they would stay on for because they didn't know what else to do, and that's exactly what she did. So, so she, she's, she's, she's work. Yeah. She's working for this family, um, for years. She, she, does she just take their last name or do they, do they make her take the last name? Do we know? Oh yeah. They made her take it. Um, they made her take their name because they didn't want her to have an Irish name. Uh, They changed her name to Jane Toppin, but they never formally adopted her. 
which is a real slap in the face because that was, you know, they adopted her when she was so young that that was most of what she knew of the family. Okay. So she, so so she has their surname now. Um, Mm -hmm. and at some point she, she actually tries to make an honest go at a career. Tell us what she does next. Yeah. So it actually, um, takes a while for her to, to change her mind, but, um, she decided one day, I believe she was 28 years old, she just decided she was going to go to nursing school, which um, even in today's culture where, you know, we can do anything, um, it's very uncommon to change careers in your late 20s. Right. Um, you can do it. It can be done, but it's very uncommon, and it is less common even for women to do it. Um, especially with something as difficult as a nursing degree. But, um, you know, she's like, whatever, I can do whatever I want, because she um, she was kind of awesome. Like, she was a genius. Um, people loved being around her. She was super friendly. She had the best stories. She had the best gossip. Like, she, she could really work a room, um, which was perfect for nursing, <laughs> Because they had so many patients, um, none of the nurses liked her, but all of the doctors did. Um, because she was crushing it, like she was just killing it. Like she would do, she would think of things that they needed before they needed them, and um, it probably helped too that she had, excuse me, um, some you know some working years over the other students. But um, yeah, she went to uh, I can't remember which one is first now, but one of the most prestigious colleges in Boston. It was either Massachusetts General or Cambridge. She ended up going to both of them, um, but I can't remember which one is first offhand. So she decides she's going, yeah, she's going to, she decides she's going to be a nurse and, Mm -hmm. you know, which is one of the, the, the most noble professions um, Truly. you know, and it really takes a tremendous amount of empathy and, and the desire to want to care for people. Now, do we know at that point in her life when she's training to be a nurse, has she started to exhibit any of these, I don't know what we would call, you know, hints or signs that she might be headed down a road of uh, trouble? Have we, do we learn anything about her life at that point that suggests that might be happening? So there's not much documented about her uh, childhood or young adulthood, really. Um, So that's anyone's guess. My guess is that there would have been some some sort of early determining traits where it's like, you might not be a murderer later, but you're kind of hitting the trifecta. You know, like they have the McDonald trifecta where, like, if you torture animals, like, let's keep an eye on this kid right, type thing. Right, Um doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be evil, but it kind of shows that you might have the proclivity to do it if you can do that. So I don't know that that in particular would have been the case, but I can imagine just um, just me, myself, as, like, a naturally somewhat defiant person, if I was brought into a home with a girl who, um, you know, was, you know, I would look at like a sister and she was given all of the privilege and I had none of it, even though I was working my ass off. Like I wouldn't sit well with me either. Like I would be pretty, (laughs) um, pretty resentful of that whole situation. Um, I don't think that I don't like to think that I would hurt anybody physically, but I I think that it would probably come out somehow. Um, and I I think that, and it's, it's interesting too, because that's actually not the direction that her behavior seemed to have escalated in the hospital. So she actually um, really loved a lot of her patients and didn't want them to leave. So she would make them sicker at first. Like that's how we think it is, started. Yeah. So is that, is that a form of uh, what we call now a Munchausen syndrome or is it something similar to that? Where, I mean, are you um, familiar with that? Yeah, I'm, I'm somewhat familiar with Munchausen's, yeah. but I think, so it's it's kind of, kind of a, a, the way a I understood it is that you you believe the person, like if, if you're making, if you're, you know, if you're, if you are, if you're the person who has Munchausen's, you believe that you are sick, 
but you are also making yourself sick. So if you have Munchausen's by proxy, you believe someone is sick, but you are also making them sicker. Is how I've understood it. Okay, maybe, Um, yeah. yeah. I I thought it had something to do with you actually um, causing an illness of oh, someone does. so that you you get sympathy and you feel you know you have some importance and that kind of thing um this well, if woman, that's the case then yes definitely i think so okay this, <laughs> that maybe i've just misunderstood it this woman um at some point says that her ambition in life was to have killed more people helpless people than any other man or woman now that is not you know, that is a big departure from someone who is a caring, nurturing person. Um, yep. when, does the, when does the murdering start? How does this start? So I do take issue with that line, even though it is from her confession, because it just, I don't know, it just seems so wild. So you don't think she actually that, said that? She don't, you don't think those I were don't her know. words? Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. I have my doubts. Okay. It is written down that she said it, so we take it in stride, you know. Um, but it just seems like maybe she did. I mean, she was pretty arrogant, and that seems to be the sort of thing that very narcissistic people do when they are found out is they're, they, they get mad when you get the story wrong. You know, like, no, you did, you, you, that's wrong. I was smarter than that, and they'll correct you. Um, so, you know, that could, that could be... It could be authentic, for sure. Um, But to your point, it is a very different (laughs) sort of attitude from, don't go, stay a little longer. (laughs) uh, So how did we get there? Um, I think the the way that I understand that it happened and the way that it happens in the book is that um, she kind of likes the thrill of, or not kind of, she is fascinated with the thrill that she gets from pushing someone very close to death and then bringing them back. So she experiments a lot on her patients who are already very sick. And like we've talked about before, like medical, medical science was like, maybe wash your hands once in a while. Like it doesn't matter. (laughs) Um, People were dying of hospitalism, which is, um, basically sepsis like it it's it was real bad yeah they didn't um, really understand uh the transmission of diseases and and bacteria and how you can get they just didn't understand it right and i think that even though they under like some people understood it it was really hard to implement when they're like but my hands are clean look at them <laughs> so i think um that is a big part of it and um yeah, so even so, uh, when, when she was experimenting, she, it just it gradually got more intense. Like, she would give a different cocktail, and she got really smart with mixing the different substances that she would inject or administer orally or by enemas later if the person was unconscious. Um, so that the symptoms of each of them would mask each other. So a doctor would come in to inspect and be like, e, mm, I don't know, maybe a stroke? Like, they, don't, they wouldn't be able to tell yeah. because uh, one would dilate the pupils, one would contract them. Um, it, was, uh, it was kind of, it was, it was a smart way to go about it, even though it is very disturbing. So she just got sloppy and then um when her patients started to fear from her she was like okay that's fine i can take care of myself so (laughs) um from there it escalated even more because she started to then exercise those experiments on people that she knew right outside of the hospital outside of the hospital correct yeah and um, it seems to be that her her list of victims includes, uh, you know, whether they were patients, but people that she didn't really have any personal relationship with, to people that she actually wanted to kill. Right. Um, it, it kind of went opposite from the patterns that we see uh, most often with serial killers. Is like usually it's someone they know first, and then they want to do a stranger because it is more thrilling, and they don't know, you know, they can't 
predict every outcome, but with her it went opposite, which is um, interesting, and which is a reason why I think that she should be studied, because I think there's a lot to learn from that, although, you know, it's, um, documentation is not super solid, factually, not to the degree that we want it to be now. Um, but yeah, she, she uh, started exercising those on her patients one-on-one, and she got really frustrated uh, with dealing with, like, whiny people. So she would be like, all right, I'm going to just put you to sleep. And then um, we'd just get really frustrated with them and be like, okay, I'm tired of this, and kind of murder them. You know, one of the stories that um, I read uh, about her, she, she murdered an entire family that she was working for. Um, there were there was, a, I think, a I don't know, there's four or five of these family members that all died, starting with the wife and then the husband and then um, some siblings, I don't know, and then maybe even a maid because uh, she wanted the job. How is it that somebody can be in a household and four or five people die around you of <laughs> odd circumstances and nobody points the finger at you right away? I, I mean, is, is it really that uh, they were that, that maybe, maybe they couldn't believe a woman like this would do some things like that? Or what was going on here? So great question. Um, that that is the old like that family all dying in close succession of undetermined causes is what got ended up getting her caught. So you're right; they did finally pick up on it at that time. And you're also right with they didn't want to believe it of her because everyone liked her. Like she was so fun and smart and fun to be around and like kind of cute and. I think that that was a big part of it is, like, they just didn't want it to be true. And, I mean, we, we see this now. I actually was listening to the audiobook of Malcolm Gladwell's Talking to Strangers earlier about how we, um, we kind of default to truth. So we want to believe people who are talking to us just because, like, it's the easier way to live. That's what humans are programmed to do. So there's, there's that part of, you know, she's saying, like, she gave someone uh, over-the-counter, which was normal at the time, like strychnine for a headache. And it's like, or not strychnine, it was, um, yeah, no, chocolate-covered strychnine. That's right. Yep, that was the wild thing that I found in my search and just distracted myself from. But um, she would give them, like, a regular medicine at the time for an ailment that they were actually having at the time, and then they would be very, very sick for a couple of days and then die. So they, you know, they wanted to believe her because she did nurse a lot of people to health. Right. So that's, that's part of it. And then I think as well, um, and, and we do see this now too, it's really hard to unsay something. Like once you accuse someone of something, you're either right or you're wrong and you're bad. So... That, I think that was probably a big part of it, too, is that people were very hesitant to point the finger. And this is also a very conservative Victorian society. Like, they are the reasons why we have table skirts, because the legs of the table were too sexy. Like, they couldn't talk about anything. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Um, this story is is fascinating. It's very complex. And just to remind folks, if you really want to learn about uh, this story and the life of Jane Toppin, you, you need to read the book. It's America's First Female Serial Killer, Jane Toppin and the Making of a Monster. And uh, before we continue with the conversation, Mary Kay, where can people find the book? Oh, thank you for asking. Um so it's available at all your major retailers. Like if you love Amazon and you need it like tomorrow, it's on Amazon. Um, I like to go through Bookshop as well because you can select your independent bookstore um, to, to help out. Um, and they need it right now because you can't right now go into the store. Although if you can go into the store, um, your independent bookseller will also, it's, you know, it's distributed to your Ingram so they can get it there for you. And if you definitely need a signed copy, I have a couple. So just like find me on social media and we will hook it up. <laughs> All right. So one of the m- more bizarre aspects of this case, and I don't know if you went into this at all, um, but it's reported that Jane f- got a certain amount of sexual gratification from some of these murders. What do we know about that? So I did go there. I did go there. And it, um, 
the woman who kind of put the nail in the coffin is one of her surviving victims. Her name was Amelia Finney. Um, she was in the hospital for, um, I always get the procedure wrong, but she had a procedure done on her uterus with silver nitrate, which sounds excruciating now. So she was in the hospital, and she is um, the testimony again. And I could not find the actual testimony, which um, kind of broke my heart. But um, we, we have records of it, like secondhand and in the, in the newspaper, um, of her, you know, being upset in the middle of the night, not being able to sleep, and Jane came and gave her something that made her sort of groggy and hallucinate and also fidget and tried to give her more of it, and she said uh, she refused, and then she has a memory of her getting in the bed with her, Mm -hmm. um, which I cannot imagine how difficult it must have been for that woman to testify. So, like, so long later where she had, like, way repressed it, just been like, that had to have been... Just a, a night terror, like that had to have been real. That had to have been—I mean, that had to have been not real. That had to have been something that I invented, because that's horrifying. That really—I mean, everything that we've talked about is horrifying. But that, especially, where like you've already gone through this terrible procedure, and now you can't sleep. Now your nurse is trying to get into bed with you. Like it's just awful. Um, but she she ended up coming forward and testifying after the um, Davis family was annihilated and uh she she's the one who because all the other victims were dead like she was the only one who came forward i'm a little i'm a little little uncertain of your position on this are you saying that you don't believe it happened that she this was somehow a hallucination hallucination or are you saying that it did happen and it was just it was just you know a nightmare Oh no! I think that it definitely did happen, okay, okay. and it, and I think yeah, oh, yeah, I believe her one hundred percent. Yeah, um, I, I think it it goes to her credit that she did testify. Um, I think that she probably had tried to forget it by saying it was a nightmare. Um, did did Jane did Jane admit <laughs> to any of these things? I mean, it's also reported that she would not just with this particular uh, victim who survived, but with the others, she would lie with them and hold them while they died. Uh, I mean, that had to come from somewhere. Did that come from her confession or from a trial? Where where did that come out? Or just that one example, and they assumed it was the case for all of them. So that that example did come out in the trial. And I believe that because she was, uh, and I don't want to give too much of the ending away, although, you know, it did happen 100 years ago, so, like, (laughs) spoiler, um, or more than 100, but uh, she was committed to another asylum, and uh, while while there and while being admitted, she met with a psychiatrist that they then called alienist. So I believe that is where that information was um, more explored. So from from her therapy sessions in in the asylum, is that what we're talking about? Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, I don't know if it would have been therapy sessions. I think it would have been more like a criminal processing with a psychologist present. I see. I see. Type of thing. Yeah. I think, um, but I, I'm not I'm not super confident on that answer. But uh, that's what I thought of. So. I'm not sure. We, um, you know, we know the confession. I think the confession uh, was to 31 separate murders. Do we know whether that's an exaggeration? Do we believe that it's more than that? Is there any other information that support can support it one way or the other? So the 31 is not clear. And she does say that she may have forgotten some in the hospital. But there is a list. I believe it's on her um, confession, and I believe that list is of 14 vic- certain victims, Right. I think. So at least that many and probably more and maybe much more. Let's see. Yeah, about 12. Yeah. It, it's an amazing story. We have about uh, 10 minutes left with you, and I, I want to change the topic for a little bit. Once again, the book here is called America's First Female Serial Killer, Jane Toppin and the Making of a Monster. Again, available uh, essentially everywhere you can um, 
you can find books, Amazon and other places. But I want to talk a little bit while in the time we have left, Mary Kay, about some of your other work. You do a podcast. Tell us about the podcast. Okay. Um, yes. So I love the podcast. Like I make the, jo- the joke after I watch The Crown that the book is my pride and the podcast is my joy. So they're my pride and joy, um, but separate. So um, it started um, with, you know, two of my close friends, and I'm a literature professor, so I used to love to teach scary movies because even if the students hated them, they definitely had something to say about them. So it was like the way to get something out of them. Um, And, of course, you know, it was challenged by choice. They got to pick among the selection, the illusion of choice, if you will, but I found myself like, um, you know, I want to talk during the discussion, too. And a good teacher doesn't really talk that much. Like, they make the other people get there on their own. Right. So I was like, well, I have good thoughts, too, and not all of them are appropriate. So let's make a podcast. And um, that's basically what we do. Like, we analyze um, all your favorite horror movies, some old, some new, some big blockbusters, some... Indies, some that are horror adjacent, like we did The Mummy a long time ago, which is like not horror and probably not a great movie, but so fun. (laughs) So um, we talk about um, the really like anything that has something in it that will kill you. And that's why we named it Everything Trying to Kill You. Um, So it it kind of runs the gamut through those. And so I have the literature background. Um, One of my co-hosts, or all of them are writers, but one of them has background in film and the other uh, writes fiction and works in um, elder care and is also just a big horror enthusiast. So we talk about it from the points of view, or talk about the films from the perspectives of women of color and um, marginalized women as well. Um, and we like to have guests on and, and talk about all our favorite horror movies and what they're doing right and what they miss the mark on a little bit. And how we would never accept an invitation to a dinner party at our boyfriend's ex-wife's house. (laughs) You know, just things that are, like, totally implausible that happen in horror movies. We like to rip on that mercilessly. Um, That sounds sounds like a lot of fun, and I'm assuming the podcast can be found essentially wherever podcasts are found. Pretty much, yeah. We got the the big ones. Um, We got it on uh, Apple Podcasts, uh, Google Play, the big ones. And and, 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 the and, sh- and the show is called Everything Trying to Kill You. It is. That's right. <laughs> so I have to, but I have to ask you. So I'm I'm a horror uh, fan as well. In fact, to the point where I have my own series of horror conventions that I organize, run, and promote called Scaricon. And um, uh, so I'm I'm really into this, and I'm curious what what some of your favorite horror films are. Oh, okay. So, um, wow, this is, I'm so excited. Um, my, I think the scariest movie I've ever seen is The Witch by Robert Eggers. That movie haunts me to my core. Every time I see it, fresh hell opens before me, like something happened in it that I didn't notice before. It's just, it's so tight and all the performances are magical. Um, so that's probably one of my favorites. One of my recent watches that I was fascinated with is um, Horse Girl, starring what? Alison Brie. Did what you see it? that? Horror Squirrel? Horse Girl. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm real country. <laughs> oh, that's right. Horse Girl. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I have not seen that. No. no, no. Oh, well, it's on Netflix, um, and you're in for a treat whenever you do, because it it's it's smart and uh, you know Alison Brie is a national treasure. Um, it's really pretty too. Uh, so that's one of my favorites. Um, Jordan Peele can do no wrong, of course. Um, and some others that I'm obsessed with. It's a good list there. I mean, that's a great start for sure. Oh, thank you. Yeah. How Do you have a, a favorite? Uh, you know, I'm a classic horror fan for the most part. When I say okay. classic, I mean black and white classics. I mean, those are my favorites. Okay. And they're awfully campy in many in many cases. They're not particularly scary by today's standards. They're just, uh, there's something charming about them to me. I love those yeah. stories. However, uh, you know, having said that, there are some really good uh, horror films. One of the, uh, you know, there's a couple that have come out in the last 10 years or so that I, that I, that 
the same as The Witch for You, Haunt Me. One of them is called Lake Mungo. Have you seen that? I have not seen it, but I have heard of it. Yeah, that's a good one. I like I like the found footage slash kind of reality approach to some of yeah. the some of the horror. And I'm not a gore fan. I don't like gory films. Um, that yeah, kind of that kind of horror does not you know doesn't do it for me. I prefer the the more psychological horror. Um, and I'm really blanking. Um, I wasn't prepared to, to offer a list, so I'm blanking. And I <laughs> you know it's not an easy thing to do. Um, but there are some good ones out so there. Many- right yeah. it's like your whole brain is crowded and like pick me oh i thought of another one too midsummer that one was real good no oh, i don't i haven't okay. seen that one either okay so it sounds like i have some films some films to watch for sure me too me too <laughs> um so uh the podcast you've got uh, the uh the book obviously and i did notice something else on your website that i wanted to ask you about there's a section um called let me see what it, oh publications and there's a whole bunch of articles and stuff mm-hmm. there do you write articles too is that what you do as well I do, yeah. Um, I write uh, essays that are narrative. Like I have one on there about Jane. I have one forthcoming about, uh, or for the same place, about Solitude, who led a slave rebellion while she was eight months pregnant. Um, when I just, I just you know, fell down a Wikipedia wormhole one day and was like, okay, we need to know this story <laughs> um, for sure. So I uh, have that one coming out, and then I also write um, articles. Like, sometimes they're reviews, sometimes they're um, articles just about, like, so how many black people were in Europe during the time that Bridgerton is set? <laughs> like, we need to know that. Um, so kind of runs the, runs the gamut of, you know, historical to fun to just, outraged at something that happened in pop culture or something like that. But yeah, um, I do. I like writing nonfiction of all sorts. So there, yeah, there's a, there's a big chunk in there that I just try to keep a, a, a running list of. The, um, the true crime genre. And, and, you know, one of the things, you know, when you, when we just set up this conversation, you know, you said you're a true crime author. Uh, do you intend to write more of these true crime type books? I do, and I, um, I'm, I'm working on one. I'm still in the research stages right now from, or, or excuse me, about the numbers queen. She ran the numbers racket in Harlem during the Prohibition era. Her name is Madame Stephanie St. Clair, and she is the baddest bitch in the game. Like, she stood down Dutch Schultz, and, um, and I just, same with the other two women. Like, I had just never heard her story until one day I did and was like, okay, what have we been doing in school? Like, why aren't we hearing about this? Um, so, yep, that's the one I'm working on next. It's less murdery, more gangstery, but still murdery, just not as much. Yeah, yeah. Um, what about? Yeah, I love all of that. What about, um, uh, you know, I've thrown out a bunch of true crime documentaries. Uh, any any of those that uh, that particularly appeal to you, Any whether I've mentioned them or not? My, the one that I've seen a number of times because I just need everyone to see it is Mommy Dead and Dearest about um, Gypsy Rose Blanchard. You know that one? I've seen, I I haven't watched it, but I've seen it listed. Yeah. Um, So that, that's the one that I thought of first. Um, I do like the, the true crime documentaries. I will say though, the, um, any real footage or 911 calls just make me really upset. So I kind of have to like go in with, a, you know, ready to fast forward over those parts just because if they're real, it's like, yeah. Ooh. Yeah. yeah. You, Which is kind you, of a paradox because I write about that all the time. Like, yeah. what is the big deal? If, I don't yeah, know. yeah. You can hear, you can hear the real terror in people's voices and that's, a, that's a tough thing to handle. Um, and the last thing we need to talk about tonight before I let you go is this ghost in your house. House Is it in your current house? Uh, and tell us the story. How do you know you have a ghost in the house? Okay, so uh, I want to tell you it's not a real ghost. Okay. Um, <laughs> my grandmother, um, who passed away uh, just over a year ago, she was a widow, and she lived in this beautiful house by herself full of artifacts and antiques. And I went to her house, you know, just to visit with her while she's sick. Um, and I was going to go to the bathroom, and at the end of the hall, there were these two dress mannequins wearing all white 
Victorian nightgowns. I'm looking at them right now. And um, at the end of the hall, and I just busted a U-turn, and I was like, Grandmama, why do you have these ghosts at the end of the hallway? And she goes, oh, that's to scare off intruders. <laughs> they come in here and try to get me. <laughs> and, oh, and then um, she left them both to me when she died. So I have them in, my, in front of my window right now. So that scares off intruders. Oh, nice. <laughs> okay. in my house. That's a yeah. great story. That's, a, that's um, actually, it's actually heartwarming <laughs> as opposed to a scary ghost thanks. story. Yeah. Um, well, once again, let yeah. people know where they can get the books and follow your work. Okay. Um, my name is Mary Kay McBrayer. So I'm on all of the, so, uh, not all of the social media. There's so many now. Goodness. Um, Twitter and Instagram and Facebook is Mary Kay McBrayer. And the book is America's first female serial killer. Jane Toppin in the Making of a Monster, and you can find that at all your major retailers. And the podcast is Everything Trying to Kill You, and you can find that pretty much anywhere you like to catch your podcast. That's so, true. Um, thank, yeah, thank you all so much for listening, and this was so fun. And thank you, yeah, Amy, it was, for... It, well, thank you. My pleasure, and, and I appreciate you being here. And keep stay in touch with us. Let us know, you know, on any of your projects that you're working on, because we'd love to have you back sometime. Well, thank you so much. And I'm coming to Scaracon. I'm going to wear one of these nightgowns. Oh, perfect. <laughs> I'll <laughs> perfect. see you there. <laughs> All right. Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by J.V. Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. Eddie is spelled with a Y at slickeddieedwards at gmail.com.